I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this colloquium series on higher education and the new economy, crisis or opportunity. Well, my answer to that question is that obviously it's both crisis and opportunity. There were times during my career as an administrator when I used to say that what we really need is a good rolling crisis. And my prayer has been, <clears throat> you know, been fulfilled, maybe a little bit beyond what I really wanted. The reason a crisis is good, of course, is that it makes change possible that may not be possible in good times when you can do everything incrementally. I learned a lot about change at the University of Arizona between 1983 and 1988 when I had the privilege of serving down here. The university had undergone major changes over the last, the previous several decades under the leadership of President Harwell, President Schaefer, and I had the privilege of serving under President Koffler, who was not about to rest on any laurels, but pursued a very aggressive agenda for change. And I'm very pleased to have President Koffler here today to listen to me at his own peril. <laughs> the state of Arizona is very fortunate to have three fine universities, and uh, it clearly is one of the great assets of the state of Arizona and uh, it is where the future of the state of Arizona really is lodged in many ways since we are now in a knowledge economy and Arizona is going to have to take its place in that, in that uh, context. The previous speakers, the Regent Chair Ernie Calderon and President Robert Shelton, have spoken eloquently about the state and its higher education and also have dealt with crisis and opportunity. And uh, it's quite clear that although I'm going to dwell in Washington, that uh, the real opportunities for change, the real change is going to take place in the states, in the universities across the country, and it's going to have to be a thousand flowers that are going to have to bloom if we are going to meet the challenges of the future. I'd like to have the first. Okay. The, uh, I'm going to talk about um, several things, and uh, I'm going to apply not exclusively the perspective of the Association of American Universities, but I'm going to uh, rely to some extent on that particular organization as I review the Washington scene. My um, topics here are, first of all, a little bit about the Washington scene, and then about science, the endless frontier, which I regard as a sacred text, and I think it will become clear in my talk if you don't already know that particular sacred text. I'm going to talk about international competition and rankings of universities, and I'm going to talk about what has become known under the phrase of rising above the gathering storm, which is actually the title of a report written um, a few years ago that laid out an agenda that dealt with one of the storms, that is international competition in the United States and its higher education system in that context. But then, of course, the second storm has started brewing and has not quite blown over yet, and that is the financial crisis. So rising above the gathering storms really should be the, be the title. The Washington uh, scene is rather complex. 
Obviously, we have the administration playing a major role in that Washington scene. The president signs advisor, the office that that person is head of, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Much of the policy work comes in one way or another through this OSTP. Then there's something called PCAS, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, that also that consists of both academics and business people. And then the OMB, of course, which holds the budget strings and also has some uh, regulatory role when it comes to, to funding of, uh, of university research. So that's the, that particular aspect of the scene. The, uh, President Obama wasted no time in appointing people to these offices, John Holdren from Harvard and uh, um, John F. Kennedy School of Government, and then Eric Lander, also from Harvard, also from a medical school, who now co-chairs this PCAST, President's Council on Advisors on, Advisors on Science and Technology, together with uh, uh, Harold Barmus, who was head of NIH and is a very distinguished Nobel laureate scientist. The federal agencies, well, you have this alphabet soup, and I want to just touch on a few of them, the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, very major funders of university research. You have also uh, large amounts in the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy and in NASA, that is, benefits university research. And then, of course, in the Department of Human Services, you have student aid, the Pell Grants, and then you have the National Endowments for the Humanities and the Arts, which, um, which are also important funding agencies. Just to give you a sense of the magnitudes here, the, the NSF budget is in excess of $7 billion, and the NIH budget is actually in excess of $30 billion, and the Pell Grants run to about $20 billion. So all told, the federal funding here is something like $70 billion a year, so it's a very significant, significant uh, investment that the federal government is doing, making in our universities and not least in our research universities. You have also regulatory issues that arise, for example, in the Department of Commerce, and you have it in uh, the Department of State, uh, especially regulations concerning in international students. And you have the Office of Management Budget where the uh, very important issues of indirect cost and cost sharing, which are kind of inside baseball issues but very important to the research universities, are handled. The uh, Washington Higher Education Secretariat, when I came to Washington as president of AAU, I thought that this is a real mess because there were 50 different associations. and. They're all represented in this Washington Higher Education Secretariat, and it really sorts itself out pretty nice, and it's a, Secretariat is a good information-sharing mechanism. The, uh, the SIX is a group that really tries to hammer out joint positions on very important federal issues. The American Council on Education, the American Association of Community Colleges, the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, AAU, Association of American Universities, Association of Public and Land Grants Universities and the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. And the presidents of those six organizations meet every week to, as I said, try to formulate uh, joint positions. There are also some specialty or organizations that are very important, Council of Graduate Schools, the Association of American Medical Colleges, Council of Higher Education Accreditation, and the Council of Governmental Relations, etc. And AAU, again, work very directly with them on various policy issues and in 
its lobbying activities with the administration and with Congress. The Association of American Universities goes back to 1900. It has 62 research universities by invitation, 60 American and two Canadian. And the University of Arizona became a member in the early 1980s and was founded by uh, 13 universities in 1900 to ride herd on the quality of, of graduate education, which was really blossoming in the United States at that time in a rather wild-grown fashion after Americans had gone to Berlin for many years to get their doctor's degrees. Uh, these are the 13. I see that there are three public and ten uh, three public and ten, hard, uh, ten private universities. And uh, after this group was founded, there were uh, the big ten universities, most of them came in in 1909, and the, gradually the organization built to its current membership. The National Academy should also be mentioned because we worked in the association, we worked very closely with the National Academies, which really are kind of a, a research arm and often respond to questions from Congress and do, do a very, very, have a very important role in strategic planning when it comes to higher education and, and not least research. And uh, the academy consists of the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering and the Institute of Medicine. And they also have, as part of their configuration, the National Research Council, which you probably have encountered mostly because they do this decennial evaluation of graduate programs. There are, from my perspective, five major milestones in the development of higher education, and not least the research universities. The so GI Bill in 1944 that opened the gates of American universities to huge numbers of students. In Science, the Endless Frontier in 1945, which I will come back to, what I call the sacred text. The Pell Grants that again extended opportunity by federal funding for, for qualified students. The Bayh-Dole Act on intellectual property. In 1980, the federal government turned over to the universities doing the research, the intellectual property ownership of the discoveries and inventions made through the research. Very, very important in fostering entrepreneurship. And then we have this uh, crisis report called the Rise Above the Gathering Storm, which I will also come back to. Science, the Endless Frontier, this report written by Vannevar Bush, director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development in 1945, really laid the foundation for our, our American research system where the federal government invests in our research universities and some other agencies to be the nation's basic research agency. And the fact that the universities have played this role has been extremely important. The uh, well, Vannevar Bush, this is too long for you to read now, but let me just quote very quickly here. He said, publicly and privately supported colleges and universities and the endowed research institute must furnish both the new scientific knowledge and the trained research workers. These institutions should be relatively free from the adverse pressure of convention, prejudice, or commercial necessity. And this is really the, the this is really the, the most important the most important few sentences when it comes to the American research enterprise. It certainly resonates uh, today when we are trying to plan the future of 
of the, uh, this research enterprise. Albert Bush said, a nation which depends upon others for its basic scientific knowledge will be slow in its industrial progress and weak in its competitive position in world trade, regardless of its mechanical skills. Quite prophetic. Now, what has happened since World War II is nothing less than spectacular. The United States has certainly gained world leadership in research and graduate education as recognized by Nobel Prizes and all other marks of scientific prowess and distinction, and by hordes of international students coming to our shores. When I came as an international student, or foreign student, as we would call them, in 1956, there were about 50,000 of us coming to this country, which is a respectable number, too. I, I came over on a boat that was full of European students going to America, full of expectations, and American students coming back from a summer in Europe, and we had a, we had a good time. <laughs> By 19, 19, um, that was 50,000 in 1956. In 2009, according to the report of the Institute of International Education, there were 671,616 international students in this country. So well over half a million students. And this is after 9-11 when there was a little sagging in the number of students coming. Now it's way up again and larger than ever. Okay, let's look at federal, federal science and engineering R&D, just to give you again a little sense of the federal funding. The federal funding is $31 billion in that area, state and local $3.4 billion, industry $2.9 billion, institutional funds $10.4 billion. The universities themselves invest heavily in this research enterprise as well. And the total sum there is almost $52 billion of which 39.4 is for basic research. Now, as far as the impact is concerned, it um, is significant. The Nobel laureate economist Robert Solo has estimated that, that uh, since World War II, about 50% of the, the economic growth can be attributed to technological innovation, much of it from government-funded university-based research. And former University of California President Richard Atkinson cites statistics that show that 73% of the papers cited by U.S. industry patents, by industry patents, are based on publications by many academic scientists. He also cites a statistic that a number of patents awarded to university faculty has risen from 800 in 1988 to 3,200 in 2003, thanks to that Bayh-Dole Act that gave the universities the intellectual property rights and spurred on an enormous blooming of development on the basis of the research done at the universities in collaboration with industry but also through a remarkable entrepreneurial activity undertaken by faculty. Well, the impact on the University of Arizona is quite significant. These are, unfortunately, I didn't find more up-to-date figures, and it's, the numbers are higher now than they were in 2006, but you can see that it's several hundred million dollars that flow into the state of Arizona in funding from the federal government. Well, best in the world, but can we sustain worldwide leadership? Questions are being raised with increasing intensity. Can we sustain leadership in research and graduate education? What will be the effect of declining state support? What will be the effect of declining alumni and donor support and declining revenues from endowments? 
what will be the result of continuing and perhaps intensifying uncertainty and complexity of federal funding. Other nations are rooming, rumored to be lying in wait to try to overtake us in what they regard as the most successful and valuable part of our country, our unequal university-based research and graduate enterprise. China has put large numbers into uh, developing their institutions. And uh, Germany, Korea, Japan, and India, and others are making similar strategic investments. Here are China's Ivy League. This conference of nine, C9, was established quite recently. And you can see the universities here that uh, are part of that very distinguished group of universities in China. And the Chinese mean to compete in the most intense fashion. The uh, Ministry of Education in China, the minister's spokeswoman, Hu Mei, said that the establishment of the conference is helpful attempt that is conducive to the country's construction of high-quality colleges, cultivation of top-notch innovative talents, and enhanced cooperation and exchanges between Chinese universities and their foreign counterparts. And China, by the way, is by far the nation that sends most international students to this country, followed by India. Well, we seem to be getting a run for our money, or even more importantly, we're getting a run for our knowledge and our skills. Now, let me look at some rankings here. And I, I think you saw a slide with some of the areas that have been developed in recent years through universities, the uh, areas such as computer science, biological engineering, lasers, the Internet, and so forth. Now, rankings are, you know, we all love rankings, and I think we Americans love rankings maybe more than anybody else. And uh, it's interesting that this Gautong, Tung University in Shanghai came up with really the first worldwide effort to rank universities. And they did that, I think, with a not-so-hidden agenda. It was to kind of spur the, the uh, Chinese government to see what needed to be done to invest in its universities. And interestingly enough, there, there was not a single university from China in the top 100 in their ranking. And you can see here, top 50, 37 U.S., 4 U.K., 2 French, 2 Japan, 2 Canada, 1 Switzerland, 1 Denmark, and 1 Sweden. In the top 20, there were 17 U.S. universities in the top 20. Only the Cambridge and Oxford and uh, one in Japan inter intervened. Harvard was number one. Germany's highest was 55th, University of Munich. France's highest, 40th. And India's highest, none in the top 100 which is quite a, interesting. Gautung uh, placed University of Arizona 77th with Uppsala, Sweden, where I went. So University of Arizona, where I worked, and University of Uppsala, where I started my studies, are ranked the same way by Gautung, which satisfied me very much. Moscow State is 77th, University of Rochester 77th. Arizona uh, State University 94th with Indiana Bloomington, U of Birmingham, and U of Sydney. The Pac-10 had six in the top 100, and Berkeley was the highest ranked, with num was number three. Now, Jiao Tung was not able to just monopolize rankings, so the Times Higher Education Supplement started a ranking, and they provided competition. And while the Jiao Tung ranking was based very heavily on the citation index and on the number of Nobel Prizes and other very distinguished scientific awards, 
the Times had a much broader spectrum. They had those criteria, but they also had evaluation by faculty, staff, and students of the institutions. And they came up with rankings that were quite different. Top 50, 20 US, as opposed to 37. Two, eight UK, seven Australian, seven Chinese, two Hong Kong, three Jap Japanese, three Canada, two French, one Singapore, one Switzerland, and one Netherlands. Top 20, there were 12 US instead of 17. Four from the UK, one Canadian, one Australian, one Japanese, and one from Hong Kong. Harvard was still number one. The highest French one was number 26, the called Normal Supérieur. The highest German was Heidelberg. So you see that the, high, the top rankings for various nations were not the same in the two, two rankings. And uh, in this ranking, University of Arizona was 134th with Paris 6. Arizona State was not in the top 200 and Pat 10. There were three in the top 100 here. Stanford and Berkeley were the top ranked in the Times survey. And I noted already that there were no Chinese universities in this Chinese ranking, probably because of, maybe because of political speculation that induced the authorities to invest. The Brits had no reservations about claiming top spots, of course, with Cambridge and Oxford being number two and three after the invincible Harvard. The Russians did a much scorned survey some time ago where Moscow State ended up as number five, ahead of Harvard and Cambridge, among others, ridiculed even in Russia. Now you can see that rankings game is a, is a funny game. The US News and World Report uh, is notorious for changing its criteria in order to make the report interesting. And they, over, they greatly overestimate how fast universities change because that the universities moved 10 spots in their rankings in one year. I mean, you know that, well, it really doesn't happen that way. But anyway, they, uh, it, it becomes very interesting. Unfortunately, it also has some influence on the universities. Now, we university presidents complain violently about the US News and World Report until we get ranked very, very well. <laughs> and so it's, um, you know, we, we, we are sometimes our worst enemies when it comes to, um, to what, what <laughs> these rankings do. One evaluator said that over time the primary driver of changes in the reputation scores used by the U.S. News and World Report are the U.S. News and World Report rankings themselves. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy once you get going. Now there are efforts underway to clean up this rankings scene and uh, I think that the National Research Council's rankings or, or graduate programs which is supposed to come out soon after much methodological discussion that is probably about as well as you can do in evaluation of graduate programs. They have just issued a guide on methodology that uh, they developed in, a, in extensive collaboration with the uh, associations in Washington. Uh, that's, that's the one I want to look at. The uh, European Union has gotten into the game. There is now an international observatory on academic rankings and excellence in Warsaw, an offshoot of UNESCO. And uh, I think that we are going to see more rankings and they're going to play an even larger, a greater role in, in strategic planning for our universities. Okay, sounding the alarm. This report, rising above the gathering storm, energizing and employing America for a brighter economic future. This was a report that came in the middle of, of the 
last decade, about 2005, came out as a book published by the National Academies in 2007. It was chaired by Norman Augustine, retired chairman and chief executive officer of Lockheed Martin Corporation, and with a few other wonderful credits to his to his uh, credit to his credit. The committee did not did a very thorough job assessing a mass of disturbing data. Directly asked by Senator Lamar Alexander and Senator Jeff Bingaman of the Committee on Energy and Natural Resources, with endorsement by Sherwood Borlett and Bart Gordon from the House Committee on Science, to do this report and to respond to the question of what are the 10 actions in priority order that federal policymakers could take um, to enhance the science and technology enterprise so that the United States can successfully compete, prosper, and be secure in the global community of the 21st century. What strategy with several concrete steps could be used to implement each of those actions? Now, it's clear that science and engineering has really changed the nature of work. And uh, I have some data here that are from the rising above the gathering storm. In the 20, at the beginning of the 20th century, 38% of labor force was in farm work is down now to 3%, and that the enormous increase in productivity in agriculture obviously is scientifically based. A tenfold uh, output per person hour, tenfold increase for common crops. We have here a number of fields. You know, life is better with engineering. These are the things that have happened to us in recent decades, and it's only, all that really has sprung from this university-based research enterprise going all the way from electricity and automotive technology down to lasers and fiber optics and high-performance materials. So what's happening? Well, in South Korea, 38% of all undergraduates receive their degrees in natural science or engineering. In France, 47%, China, 50%, and in the United States, 15%. Some 34% of doctoral degrees in natural sciences, including the physical, biological, earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences, and 56% of engineering PhDs in the United States are awarded to foreign-born students. In the U.S. science and technology workforce in 2000, 38% of the PhDs were foreign-born. Estimates of two-year, two three-year, and four-year degrees in 2004, China, 350,000 engineers, computer scientists, and information technologists. United States, 140,000. About one-third of U.S. students intending to major in engineering switch majors before graduating. There are almost twice as many U.S. physics, the worst, almost twice as many U.S. physics bachelor's degrees awarded in 1956 the last graduating class before Sputnik, then in 2004. In 2001, the most recent year for which data has developed, the U.S. industry spent more on tort litigation than on research and development. In 2005, only four American companies ranked among the top ten corporate recipients of patents granted by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. In beginning in 2007, the most capable high-energy particle accelerator on Earth, for the first time, will reside outside the United States. Federal funding for research in physical sciences at the percentage of gross domestic product was 45% less 
in 2004 than in 1976. The amount invested annually, I like this one, by the U.S. federal government in research in the physical sciences, mathematics, and engineering combined equals the annual increase in U.S. health care costs incurred every 20 days. You probably are familiar with Thomas Friedman's Flat Earth. He's also come up with this idea of the quiet crisis, which others have called creeping crisis. And uh, it's reminiscent of a story about the frog. If you drop the frog in boiling water, I haven't tried it, so I can't guarantee anything. It will immediately jump out of and survive. But if the frog is placed in cool water, that is heated slowly until it boils down, it won't respond in time. Are we in a slowly heating kettle and we are not, you know, are we going to leap out of there or are we going to stay in there? Well, the, uh, the report rising above really puts it in, in, very, in very global, if not cosmic terms. Civilization, they say, is on the brink of a new industrial order. The big winners in the increasingly fierce global scramble for supremacy will not be those who simply make commodities faster and cheaper than the com competition. They will be those who develop talent techniques and tools to advance that there is no competition. Our culture has always considered higher education a public good. I mean, look at the land-grant college system from the 1860s, universal primary and secondary schooling, system of superior state universities, scholarships for needy students, and the GI Bill and the National Defense Education Act, all measures that have opened up higher education and knowledge production and the knowledge sharing on a very broad basis. Now, are these indications that our society increasingly sees higher education as a private good of value only to the individual receiving it? Well, that is a good question, and it certainly has far-reaching implications, but I will not go into those here. Now, it's not only at the, uh, you know, at, at the younger age where we need dramatic change in order to ensure our knowledge society for the future. We need this also at, when it comes to grant funding. For example, they have found that the average age for the first grant from NIH is 42, and that path-breaking, so-called disruptive research that really breaks new paths is not being, being supported nearly enough by taking a risk on younger uh, younger researchers. Now the U.S. is still doing well and there are a number of international uh, comparisons uh, that indicate that. However, funding for state universities is dwindling, tuition is rising, students are borrowing more than they receive in grants, and these seem to be indications that our society increasingly sees higher education as a private good rather than a private good only of value to the person receiving it. Now other nations have taken action and they are showing an increased willingness to provide public support uh, to enhance 
protection of intellectual property rights, promote venture capital activity, fund incubation centers, and expand opportunities for innovative small companies. Here is a picture of what's happening at the state and local funding area. This is from the SHIOP, the State Higher Education Executive Officers Study in this past, past year. The total provided by state, local, and net tuition was $130 billion. $80 billion came directly from state resources. Net tuition, $41.6 billion. Local taxes, $8 billion. The trend line is not, well, the trend line has been wonderful because from 84, 25 billion to 2008, 88 billion, but then in 2009, and here you have the economic crisis clearly intervening. Actually, state, local, and, and uh, tuition providers, 86.5 billion, and if it hadn't been for the stimulus package of 2.3 billion, it would have actually been a decline, not a even break and e breaking even. Enrollment patterns, as you probably all know here, there's been a dramatic increase in enrollments in these institutions, 7.4 million to 10.8 million. And the appropriations per FTE fell to 6,500 in 2005, a 25-year low in inflation-adjusted terms. And that has been some recovery and then a drop again. So we are seeing a lot of warning signs when it comes to our investments in in higher education. This is a striking number, I think. Over the last 25 years, the share of total educational revenue derived from tuition increased over 10 percentage points from approximately 24.5 in 84 to 37.3 in 2009. Now, it's not only the public funding, but also endowment losses. It was estimated for 2009 that uh, the endowments on the average lost 18.7%. Harvard lost 29.8 percent. You know, they still had 25.7 billion left, but it was certainly a dramatic change. University of Texas and University of Michigan, you can see, also suffered some very significant declines in their uh, their endowments. And of course, the endowments have become more more and more important also to the public universities. Well, here are the recommendations that the rising above the gathering storm came up with. 10,000 teachers, 10 million minds, increase America's talent pool by vastly improving K-12 mathematics and science education, sowing the seeds, sustain and strengthen the nation's commitment to long-term basic research, best and brightest, develop, recruit, and retain top students, scientists, and engineers from both the United States and abroad, incentives for innovation, ensure that the United States is a premier place in the world for innovation. We got the new... The, the higher education community got a new charge from Congress. This again, Senator Lamar Alexander, and this, in this case Barbara Mikulski from Maryland, and also uh, representatives from Tennessee and from Texas, to assess the organization, intellectual and financial capacity of public and private American research universities relative to research universities internationally. Now, the question about efficiencies always comes up because when universities complain about funding they always say well, you got to do with less and you have to be more efficient and be sure we have to be more efficient. Now we've had a number of presidential commissions over the years here. The Truman Report, the Eisenhower Report, the Kennedy Report, the Reagan Report and 
the nation of risk at risk, of course, is the one probably that you uh, that you are most familiar with. But this was primary and secondary education that was the target. Now it is higher education that is in question. One of the commissions that has been established recently is called the Spellings Commission after the sec then Secretary Margaret Spellings of the, uh, the Department of Education. And uh, the uh, commission raised this issue. Poor and higher education systems are passing us by at a time when education is more important to our collective prosperity than ever. The commission emphasizes the relationship between industry education and the government. And they raised efficiencies and the question of efficiency always comes up. Uh, when I was at the University of Minnesota in those eight years we cut and reallocated about 25 percent of the state appropriated dollars. Now given what the University of Arizona is going through, that may seem like a rather modest kind of cut and reallocation. But anyway, there was always complaints that we, why, aren't you, why aren't you shifting resources? Why aren't you doing this? And, and it was very difficult to convince people that we were doing it. Now the, ten the tension uh, between different parties in the national debate was quite apparent in an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education on the 12th of February this year. The Chancellor of the University of Nebraska, Harvey Perlman, pointed out that colleges don't need budget cuts from Washington to teach them to stretch a dollar. They had learned that lesson and had already been pulled in by declining support at the state level. On the other hand, the chair of the Bush administration's Commission on the Future of Higher Education, the Spellings Commission, maintained that, quote, most colleges still haven't made fundamental changes. They typically respond to tough economic times by seeking new ways of getting government money we're simply cutting staff members rather than finding ways to be more productive with their existing resources. Well, there you have it. Well, AAU has put its oar in the water. They have recently, through the president of the association, Robert Burdahl, former chancellor at Berkeley, presented a, made a presentation to the National Academy's Board on Higher Education and the Workforce called the Renewing the Partnership Thoughts on the Current Status of American Research Universities. And they have also presented, as we have done, did in AAU over the last few years, presented recommendations first to the candidates for the presidency and then to the president-elect, trying to get these major issues on the, on the agenda of the new administrations. Now, AAU has come up with a number of principles, and I show this primarily because it kind of repeats the importance of that sacred text, the Vannevar Bush report. Open competition with a rigorous merit review process, and then kind of an in, inside baseball issue, the federal government should fairly reimburse universities for the cost of research. And principle three, consistent with the need for accountability, researchers should be freed from as many unnecessary administrative reporting responsibilities as possible so that more of their valuable time can be devoted to research and teaching. And then a pious hope that any allocation of funds from the federal government in support of public research universities should not be a substitute for state funds. These suggestions include a consistent funding because the ups and downs of funding in themselves have been a problem. NIH budget was actually doubled over a five-year period in the early, early teens, or early noughts, as some people want to have it. 
And then it flattened out, and this, this led to great dislocations because the capacity that had built all of a sudden could not be fully exploited. And it was really a waste of federal money to extend to have this abrupt change in direction. We need a program for general support for research universities. We need a program for facilities and equipment and a program supporting young faculty. And let me look at some, very quickly, at some of the sample specific, more specific recommendations. Sustained and balanced growth for basic scientific research. And this sustainability and the, the balance of the funding is very essential. Launch a major science, technology, engineering, and mathematics STEM education initiative. This has to do with bringing people into those critical disciplines in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Harness the federal government's innovation and scientific engineering resources to address the major energy and environmental challenges facing our nation. Provide strong support for the Minerva Initiative to work with the National Science Foundation to implement, to operate the program. This is the Department of Defense. And this Minerva program is very interesting because it applies the social sciences to national security issues. And I wanted to bring this out because there's so much emphasis on science and engineering. But AAU has also included the social sciences and the humanities, expand the national defense education program to bring future scientists into DOD laboratories. Expand access to education, particularly during this economic downturn, so that all students have an opportunity to acquire the knowledge and skills they need to succeed in this environment in the 21st century. And current restrictions of federal funding of human embryonic stem cells. This has been a very sore point, and the hope is now that, we're, that it will, that the move is already on, that this will be, will be retracted. Straight, strengthen you with higher education and enhance international understanding by encouraging international students and scholars. After 9-11, there was a clamping down on international students, and this needs to be cleared up, and I think that major steps have been taken to actually at welcoming international students again, although we do, in contrast to the Australians, have a tendency to require international students to go home after, they, after we have educated them, rather than letting them stay in this country to uh, apply their skills. Establish a new humanities graduate student grant program at the National Endowment for the Humanities. And this is especially needed because in the sciences, grants provide support for graduate students, but in the humanities, there are teaching assistantships, and that's about it. There's very little opportunity for graduate students in the humanities to actually be supported by, by grants. And then you have these uh, technical issues, maintain a cost-sharing policy that is reasonable, that has been a tendency to for agencies to pit universities against each other to see who will contribute most and give the grants to those who are, who are willing to ante up the most. And uh, that has not been a, been a good thing. And then expand behavioral and social science research to support efforts to meet key national challenges. And ASU has taken the tack here that while the humanities and the social sciences are many cultural values that they are also of great potential practical value when it comes to actually meeting our challenges. Well, we seem to pile one report on top of the other. 
but they, these reports do have things in common, which is encouraging. There's general agreement that the basic research is essential to our economy, our security, our health, and our social and cultural well-being. There's general agreement that competitive, peer-reviewed federal grants given to individual principal investigators is the best model for federal support of basic research. And this is, of course, the Vanderbush model. There's general agreement that we need strategic planning, increased investments, and appropriate and effective regulation, and greater effectiveness and efficiency. Now, regulation is a major issue because you have human subjects protection, you have animal, animals in research protection, you have hazardous waste issues, you have conflict of interest issues, and the whole research enterprise has been surrounded by these necessary regulations, but they have tended sometimes to become so bureaucratized that they really begin to eat into the, the funding that is provided for for the research. There's also a fair amount of agreement about specific actions. The federal agencies that are mainly responsible for basic research, NIH, NSF, the science programs in the Departments of Defense and Energy, and in NASA, need increased and prefer preferably stable funding. There's certainly agreement among the educational associations and among our universities that indirect cost and cost-sharing policies need revision. There's agreement that we need significant increases in the number and preparation of American students of both genders and every background going into the so-called STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. There's agreement that we must support graduate students and younger faculty members. There's agreement among the educational associations that ideologically based restrictions on the use of federal funds for certain kinds of research should be eliminated. There is also some legislation and action that has been taken. The America Competes Act in 2007 was such an effort to put into legislation and actually into action some of these dire warnings. And it directs OSTP, the Department of Education, entered in NASA, National Institutes of Standards and Technology, and other programs, including NSF, to plan, report, and act on steps that can further innovation and competitiveness including STEM education and support for critical research. And then came the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, or the so-called stimulus package that everybody seems to hate in principle and love in the specifics. And as you know, it's supplemental appropriations for job preservation and creation, infrastructure investment, energy efficiency and science, and so forth. And uh, Major funds have actually gone to uh, research areas. But then we have President Obama's budget for 2011, which just came out a few weeks ago, and it is encouraging. Basic research, an overall increase of 4%. NIH is getting 3.2%, going up to 32. I'm sorry, my Swedish, we put commas before decimals in Sweden. I'm sorry, it's snuck in there. 32.2 billion, NSF 8% increase to 7.4 billion. Defense basic research actually got a cut. Energy Office of Science got an increase 4.4% to 5.1 billion, and NASA Science an increase of 11.4%. Unfortunately, NEH and NEA were cut. Piddling amounts to be sure, but still important to those particular kinds of activities. Well. In conclusion, a very effective general 
strategy has been in place for over half a century, from science, the endless fright frontier. It's been implemented in basic ways, but the implementation has been marred at times by the haphazard nature of the federal investments and by regulatory uncertainties and outright prohibitions. Behind much of the current debate is a firm conviction that the American strategy is highly productive and has led to American world leadership in basic science. So by all means, maintain this strategy and correct the funding and regulatory problems that have undermined the strategy. Many see rapidly increasing competition from other nations, many of which follow the basic precept formulated by Vannevar Bush, public investment in university-based basic research, with variations, of course, due to the nature of the economic systems of the nations. And, of course, it's fascinating to see how China has become, you know, wildcat capitalistic in some of its investment strategies. It's very urgent that the basic strategy be continued and, it, and that it is implemented in a more systematic and thoughtful way. I believe that the strategy can be productively continued and that corrective action can be taken in spite of the fact that as German Iron Chancellor Otto von Bismarck allegedly said, laws are like sausages, it is better not to see them being made. <laughs> we guess we must hope that the sausages that are made in the spirit of science, the endless frontier, will be delicious and nourishing. Or maybe it would be better to end with a poem quoted by Norman Augustine in his testimony to Congress about rising above the gathering storm. Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up it knows it must outrun the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running. Thank you. Thank you.